Hey you guys, welcome back to Flickers of Fear. So, Canada. I feel like a lot of times, maybe, they don't really get the attention or the respect that they deserve in regards to their contributions to the horror genre, let's say that. I mean, Canada has given us, I mean, when you really think about it, uh, one of the earliest, as well as one of, still one of the best slasher films, which of course was Black Christmas from 1974, uh, one of the best werewolf movies, which was Ginger Snaps, one of the best ghost story slash haunted house movies, which was The Changeling, um, and the entire catalog of David Goddamn Cronenberg, as well as Brandon Cronenberg, his son, who is also like makes some great movies in his own right. But despite all of that, it kind of seems like a lot of horror movies that come out of Canada, they either tend to fly under the radar or if they get some kind of like mainstream success, I feel like a lot of people just sort of like forget that they're Canadian and just kind of like lump them in with American movies. Maybe that's not the case, but that was like always the impression that I got. Now the slasher subgenre though, is, you know, fairly well represented uh, by some, you know, very standout Canadian films. Obviously, uh, there's Prom Night, uh, which is very popular, and the aforementioned Black Christmas, which, need I have to remind you, actually came out four years before John Carpenter's Halloween uh, and kind of set the template for holiday slashers, I guess, like going forward. But we also got some underrated slasher films like My Bloody Valentine from 1981, uh, Happy Birthday to Me, which is great. I really need to review that uh, one of these days now that I'm thinking about it. And uh, Visiting Hours, which is another one that a lot of people don't uh, talk about. And then we have the weird kind of hybrid movie that we're talking about today, which is 1983's slasher psychodrama Curtains. Now, this was directed, sort of, I'll get into this in a minute, by a guy named Richard Chupka, I think is how you pronounce his last name. I'm not entirely sure, uh, so I apologize. But this movie had a notoriously like troubled production that in a lot of ways is just as interesting as the film itself. So the concept behind Curtains was actually hatched back in 1980. After the producer, whose name was Peter R. Simpson, he had had success with Prom Night. He was the producer on that as well. And he was looking to cash in with another slasher film, but he wanted one like, he wanted like a slightly different take on it. You know what I mean? So he brings on the writer, Robert Guza Jr., who had actually co-written Prom Night with William Gray. And what Simpson wanted to do was that he didn't really want to go the same because, you know, the movie Terror Train, which was also kind of like a slasher and more like a teen, I guess it was like a teen young adult kind of slasher, that had come out and he wanted to avoid doing another like teen slasher type of thing. So he wanted something aimed toward maybe like a more adult audience. Now, that's not to say that he didn't want something commercially viable. Like he still wanted it to be essentially like a traditional slasher movie, just one that would appeal to an older crowd that maybe like had some older characters and wasn't just like set at a school or had a bunch of teenagers or college students or whatever. Now, the director, Richard Chipka, seemingly wanted the same thing, 
But um, clashes soon ensued, let's call it that, uh, over his personal vision of the film, which was actually less slasher movie and more like arty thriller type of thing. That's what he wanted to do. So they started having like these horrible conflicts on set about their conflicting visions of like what they wanted the movie to be. And eventually, after really shooting only about 45 minutes worth of usable footage, uh, Richard Chupka quit, and Simpson, the producer, he took over the director's chair. Now, Chupka, in fact, was so incensed by this whole shit show that he actually asked for his name to be taken off the movie when it was eventually released, uh, you know, several years later. Uh, So the director of Curtains, if you still watch it to this day, is credited as Jonathan Stryker, which is actually the name of the fictional director character that's in the movie. So this conflict, uh, you know, probably not surprisingly, I guess, between these two differing ideas behind what Curtains was supposed to be, kind of left its fingerprints all over the final product, um, as did the fact that this thing was essentially, like, filmed in fits and starts, like, over almost, like, a three-year period. Like, some of it was filmed, it was put on a shelf for a year, they had to, like, call people back, stuff was recast, they did, like, numerous rewrites and reshoots and reboots, and it was just, like, like I said, it was a complete and total shit show. Now, given the shambolic nature of its creation it's actually pretty amazing that curtains is as coherent and as relatively enjoyable as it is now don't get me wrong i'm not like you know totally blowing smoke and say this is you know a lost classic or anything like that but it's pretty decent and i mean if you're in the mood for kind of like a slow burn psychological thriller that's kind of set in this like backstabbing uh, you know, kind of framework of, uh, you know, actors, actresses, casting couch, that kind of stuff, and that also has some mild slasher elements to it, then you might just get a kick out of it. So the story of Curtains uh, centers around a famous and somewhat kind of imperious actor named Samantha Sherwood. Now, she's played by Samantha Egger, who's probably best known to horror fans for her amazing turn in David Cronenberg's The Brood. Um, Egger, by the way, has gone on record as saying that she absolutely hates this movie and really only did it for the paycheck. But to be honest, I think she's kind of like selling herself as well as the film short because she's pretty fucking great in this. So Samantha is actually the collaborator slash muse type person for director Jonathan Stryker, who's actually played by John Vernon, who was in a ton of shit. He was in Animal House. He was in Dirty Harry. He was in uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which probably where a lot of horror fans know him from. Uh, Actually, this part, fun fact, was originally written for Klaus Kinski, which would have made this a lot different film. That's all I'm saying. Um, So yeah, so Jonathan Stryker, this director, uh, he's working on a movie called Audra as a vehicle for his favorite leading lady, who is Samantha. Now, because the title character of the movie, Audra, is like a mad woman, Samantha, who is like very method, she's a method actor, so she opts to have herself committed to a mental hospital um, for real so she can kind of really get a handle on the role. However, unfortunately for her, Stryker is a total douche canoe who 
seemingly from the beginning, really had no intention of having Samantha star in this movie. And he basically just like leaves her ass in the asylum (laughs) while he goes and picks out six younger women to travel to this kind of remote country house for a prolonged like audition session. I think it's gonna take place like over one weekend or something like that. Now, it will probably surprise no one in these uh, post Weinstein days uh, that this audition session is also going to involve him seducing some or all of the ladies because you know, of course it does. Now we see early on in the film that the very resourceful Samantha has actually escaped from the mental hospital with the help of a friend of hers. And she very openly like vows revenge on Stryker as well as the beautiful actresses that are all kind of gunning to take her place in this movie in this role that she, you know, had pretty much like said was hers. So this whole first act plays out as though it's setting up like an understandable motive for Samantha, who we're led to believe is going to end up being the killer. But the movie actually has kind of some twists up its sleeve in that regard. Now, out of the six women summoned to this audition, um, one of them actually never even makes it there. There's a woman named Amanda who's played by Deborah Burgess. And she has this really bizarre dream in which she's driving to the audition, but she sees this real creepy doll, like just kind of like sitting in the middle of the road and you know, like you shouldn't do in a horror movie. She gets out of the car to like check it out. And subsequently, like somebody climbs into her car and like runs her over essentially. But like I said, this is a dream sequence. They don't really make any, um, you know, they, well, they do kind of like fake you out on that. But yes, it's a dream sequence. She wakes up. And kind of like shakes it off. She's like, huh, that was weird. Um, She then, and there's then kind of another fake out where you think somebody is broken into her apartment and is like raping her. But then it turns out that it's just her boyfriend and they're doing like some weird like rape fantasy role play. So I'm like, okay, there's a lot of like fake out kind of stuff. Not jump scares necessarily, but like fake out kind of things like that. But then she does actually later get murdered for real by a killer who's wearing like actually like a pretty scary hag mask i will say that like the mask that the killer wears in this is one of the best like slasher movie masks like in all of slasher moviedom it's really really creepy so the killer actually takes amanda's creepy doll like the same one that was in her dream which is like i don't know why anybody would make or want a doll like this it's just like really like it has this really like creepy like sad frowny face it's like yeah it's really disquieting so yeah so the killer takes that doll and presumably makes their way to the house where all of the auditions are going to be taking place so the five remaining candidates for the role they arrive for their shot at stardom under the sleazy ministrations of Jonathan Stryker, the director. So the characters, we have uh, the comedian who's named Patty. She's actually played by Lynn Griffin, who is in Black Christmas. She was actually the first one, I think, that got taken out, the one with the bag in the closet that was sitting up in the, uh, you know, in the attic the whole time. That's her. Um, You also have one who's a dancer, whose name is Lorian. And you have one who's like a musician, I think, um, named Tara. And then you have this kind of like, she's an ice skater, but she's kind of like this naive, like goody two shoes type of girl. And her name's Christy. She's actually played by Leslie Donison, Donaldson, who was also in Happy Birthday to Me, like another Canadian slasher. And then you have kind of the veteran actor that's like a little bit older, a little more famous than the other ones. And her name is Brooke. And she's actually played by Linda Thorson, who I think was like best known for being on the she was kind of, I play, think she played that character Tara King, like on the last season of the Avengers, like that British TV show. 
Um, so already at the house when they get there is like this dude that's like a caretaker, I guess. Like kind of, he's kind of like a young guy and his name is Matthew. And he's actually played by Michael Wincott, who was actually in The Crow and Strange Days. He was in a lot of things. Um, and he actually wastes no time at all in like jumping into the hot tub with Tara and, you know, the two of them uh, get down to business. So while everybody at the house like sits down to dinner, getting acquainted and like talking about the shameful and sometimes illegal things that they're willing to do, like to get this part, who should show up unexpectedly but Samantha, who sashays right into the dining room like she owns the place and calls Stryker out for his basically treachery and like leaving her in the mental asylum. Stryker is obviously uh, furious at this, but he kind of manages to keep his temper in check until later when he kind of like lets Samantha have it in private. Now, their screeching argument is actually overheard by Christy, like the naive ice skater girl. But Stryker says like when he opens the door and sees her there, he's like, oh, well, we were just like rehearsing this play. It's like this. It's not real what we were talking about. Now, after Christy goes to her room, uh, Stryker actually like slimes his way in and has sex with her, um, undoubtedly telling her that she's going to have to fuck if she wants the role bad enough. Because she looks like like after he leaves, she's like crying, like she feels like shit about herself. You know what I mean? Now, the next morning, Christy gets up real early and goes out to practice her skating routine, like presumably she does every morning, because um, there's like kind of a frozen lake nearby. There's ice. But in what is actually the film's best sequence and the one that everybody talks about when they talk about this movie, um, she kind of like she's skating and then she she gets kind of like unsettled after her music shuts off and she goes over there to see what the problem is. And she notices like a doll's hand like poking out of the snow, like near her boom box. So she digs the creepy doll like out of the snow. Um, and of course, it's the same creepy doll from Amanda's dream earlier. And then Christy turns around to see the figure like in the hag mask, like skating toward her in like slow motion. It's really great. Cause it's really like the, like I said, the mask is really creepy and the slow motion, Sometimes that can be cheesy, but like in this case, I think it came across like almost like dreamlike or surreal. And I think that makes it like way, way creepier. So the killer like has this, uh, has a sickle, which you actually saw them sharpening like earlier on. Now, Christy is actually able to fight off the killer uh, momentarily, and she kind of flees into the woods, but the person in the hag mask, like, ultimately catches up with her and, like, slices off her head. Now, this particular scene, as I mentioned, has appeared on several scariest horror movie scenes lists, and I think deservedly so. Um, It's really, really eerie. It's not super graphic or anything like that, but it's really, really eerie, like, the way that it's shot. And I will say that although the rest of the movie, like, surrounding it isn't as striking or as effective as that one scene is, it's pretty, I mean, it's a pretty great bit, like, while it lasts. So as the story goes on in true, uh, you know, slasher movie fashion, the victims start to get picked off one by one by this masked killer. Um, Although I will say, and I think I alluded to this earlier, like, unlike some other slasher movies from this era, the kills are pretty tame, and a lot of them are, like, pretty bloodless. Like, there's a little bit of nudity, but this isn't one of those kind of, like, you know, gratuitous violence or gratuitous nudity kind of things. Matter of fact, Matthew, like, the guy that's the caretaker at the house, he actually gets murdered off screen. Um, His death scene was apparently filmed, like, as far as I could determine, but... for whatever reason it didn't make it into the final cut so like i said some of the people kind of get killed off screen and they only get to get found later on um really the only somewhat gory event that happens in the movie is 
the finding of Christie's head like in the toilet in Brooke's bathroom and even that is not terribly terribly graphic because it's kind of like she sees it in there she freaks out she goes and tells Stryker about it and he's like it's just your imagination come here I'll show you and then they go back and then there's no head in there anymore so it's like I said they kind it ha- kind of has a weird like dreamlike it doesn't make a lot of sense like if you think too hard about it it's almost like it gives like a little bit of a giallo kind of vibe in that way <laughs> So you can't like think too hard about plot, you know, things in the plot and stuff like that, because a lot of times you'd be like, wait, what? But you know what I mean? Just don't think about it too hard. So I'm just saying too, like, don't expect a great deal of like real gruesome slashing in this movie, because I would call this maybe like a quasi slasher type of thing. Um, I think you'll definitely be disappointed if you're looking for like something that's super gruesome or super over the top or graphic, because this is definitely not that. So at last, toward the end, the character count is down to the final two. And while we've been primed through the entire movie to suspect that Samantha is obviously the killer, uh, the truth actually ends up being slightly more complicated than that. Now, I'll admit that I didn't entirely see the reveal coming. I will note that I was expecting a twist because I didn't think they would set up Samantha so obviously as the culprit and then have her, you know, actually be the culprit like all along. So the ending wasn't completely unexpected, but it also wasn't totally expected either, like if that makes any sense. Now, I will say, I mean, Curtains isn't a traditional slasher um, in that way, so it will probably just frustrate um, fans who were kind of looking for your typical, like, body count bloodbath type of slasher movie, but that said, there is some good stuff in here that makes it worth a watch, like, if you're in the right frame of mind. I mean, I will say the pacing is a little bit uneven and a little bit sluggish at times. Like I said, some plot points don't make a lot of sense if you think about them too hard. Um, It often seems to lean much more in the direction of, like, a drama or a revenge thriller than a straight horror movie or a straight slasher movie, but it does have some, like, pretty effective, like, chilling sequences, such as the previously mentioned, like, ice skating kill, which is probably the most famous one, and also like the final chase scene with one of the characters kind of being pursued through this kind of creepy prop shed that was actually like pretty good too um the acting in this too gotta say is also way way better than many of the other slashers of the era and that kind of like elevates it it gives it like a little bit of like a touch of class that you don't usually see like in your standard like cheap schlocky like 80s slasher type movies um and honestly besides that the hag mask that the killer wears is is really original and is actually like really genuinely frightening and creepy and the doll that turns up here and there is actually like pretty eerie too although I will say that they I wish they had done more with the doll like incorporated the doll like more into the story because it is like on the poster and everything like that and it was like a really creepy aspect that I kind of wish that they had incorporated more into the story. But, you know, what are you going to do? Um, you know, so all in all, it's not like a magnificent film or anything like that. But it's like pretty interesting nonetheless, especially if you like slashers, but something like a little bit different. And like I said, it almost has a slight vibe of more like a giallo type of movie, too. So, I mean, I'd recommend it if you're into like Canadian horror or if you like slashers, but you don't really care if it's like super graphic or anything and you just want to see like a different take on it that's more adult oriented, I guess, just in the sense of like the characters being older and stuff. But yeah, it's definitely worth watching. So if you've seen it, let me know what you thought about in the comments. And that will do it for this Flickers of Fear. I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye.